Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. G'day, Alan Kohler here with today's interview. And today it's Emma Channing, who is the founder and principal of uh, a cryptocurrency investment bank in California called Sardis Group. Now, um, uh, Emma used to work for a business called Argon, which was a um, also a, a uh, ICO or cryptocurrency investment bank, and before that um, in uh, what you might call traditional investment banking. Um, she's one of the kind of leading lights in American cryptocurrencies, and in particular initial coin offerings. Um, she uh, predicted last December that uh, Bitcoin's price would hit $50,000 in the middle of this year. Um, and it's currently, well, at, at that point when she predicted that, it was 19000 So 50000 looked pretty achievable. Now it's under 7000 as we speak. And um, surprisingly, Emma still thinks that Bitcoin will hit 50000 in the middle of this year. And she's as she says, very long Bitcoin. She's holding them. She's buying them. She thinks it's a a, a huge buy at under seven thousand dollars. So that's very interesting. Um, so we talked about that in perhaps what you might call the second half of the interview. The first half of the interview, we talked a lot about the uh, what's going on with the initial coin offering market, the ICO market, and um, how that's developing and the regulation around that. So an interview in two halves, but uh, very interesting. Uh, nevertheless, and uh, she's well worth listening to on the subject of both blockchain and cryptocurrencies. So here's Emma Channing, the principal and founder of Sardis Group. Well, Emma, um, uh, obviously 2017 was a huge year for the uh, initial coin offering market, which you operate in. Can you just give us a sense, before we get on to what's like that happened this year, can give us a sense of what happened last year. How much money was raised? How many ICOs were there? And what was it like? So let me just pull up that data. It, it's always good to be looking at the hard data. Um, but essentially there was about $4.3 billion done last year, spread over about 230 transactions. Um, that doesn't really give a great feel for it because um, there was, the the Distribution of deals is very lumpy. Um, so in some ways, not that much change between 2016 and 2017 for your average ICO issuer. Your average ICO issuer raised $6 million in 2016 and raised 12 in 2017. It's just you then have the monsters like EOS, who are now at a market cap, well, were before the crash, um, at a very significant market cap, and, and they have this, weekly rolling auction so that that's raised very significant sums and then uh filecoin tezos were all up in the 200 million range um people tend to look to those and kind of think that, that they are the standard um we certainly did look quite a few deals in the 30 to 50 million dollar range um but smaller is actually much more common so you've operated in both um, uh, what you might call traditional merchant investment banking and now looking after ICOs. Um, 
are, are ICOs more lucrative for the bankers or the people organising them, such as investment bankers, uh, than traditional IPOs? I mean, are the fees more or less for ICOs? Um, I mean, investment banks have always been charging a range of 6 to 8% um, for IPOs for a long time. Um, and that's ballpark the range that we, we charge. We charge less um, in certain circumstances, particularly where um, we try to encourage people to only do ICOs where there's a, a genuine need for the blockchain and it's genuinely integrated into their their product and platform. So when we're not actually responsible for the platform and the AML and KYC, then we drop off the it tends to be at the lower end of the range. Um, when we're responsible for issuance and, and everything that goes with running a platform like that, then our fee tends to be to the higher range. But but it's about the same. Um, I think I think what's very different about ICOs versus um, IPOs is the attention that it gets emerging growth companies at a very early stage from very sophisticated advisors. Um, you know, if I found up PwC three years ago and said, hey, there's these really cool guys, they've got this awesome technology, it's going to allow people to do securitized lending on a trustless platform. Um, there's 10 of them at the moment that have been around for a year. <laughs> there would have been a quiet laugh, laugh and then a, a click of the phone. Um, whereas now, you know, you've got some very, very, PwC has a huge ICO advisory practice, um, as does several other major accountancy firms. Um, certain law firms have dominated the space. Um, Lee Schneider, who was the double voice of now at MWE, Marcus Santori at Cooley, um, Susan Gort-Brown at Wilson Sonsini, and Josh Clayman at MOFA are kind of top four attorneys who dominate the space. And again, although most of these firms have had, um, you know, a, a startup focus, um, certainly the, the, the strength and depth of their teams that have been directed to what are relatively young teams, I think is unusual. Um, and we actually use up um, for the security token transactions that we've done. Um, and again, I think I think that's a, a new foray, in it, but it's also, um, you know, one of our clients when we switched them from a, a smaller firm um, to Scadden for a security token, um, just commented, you know, it's like go, switching from someone who's never even seen a dance to someone who's just come from a dance. Um, and that was always actually a personal frustration of mine when I was in the major firms because, you know, I saw so many friends in startups who weren't getting good advice, who were getting charged obscene amounts of money for it. Um, and then we charge, you know, major bond issuers two or three hundred K to do a two or three billion dollar raise. And it just the the really bright brains weren't actually working for emerging growth companies and I think that's the one thing that's really changed. There was a lot of um, regulatory activity 
focused on ICOs last year as well. Do you think that the SEC is keeping up with what's going on? Um, I think the SEC is, um, and I've sat on panels with several um, representatives from the SEC, including Commissioner Rose. Um, I think the SEC would would say several things, which is, um, yes, of course they are limited by by how much manpower they've got, Um, but they have a very good understanding of the space. They've been involved in looking at it from as early as 2012. Um, They are predominantly concerned with the protection of retail investors. Um, So when you've got these regular security token offerings um, that we've been doing, yes, they will take a look, but their primary focus is is retail investors uh, and making sure retail investors are not defrauded. Um, And I think you, you see that reflected in the cases that they brought to date. Um, and they're dealing with what is a slightly unwieldy set of case law. Um, the Harry test is over 40 years old. There are over a thousand cases in the string. Um, on some of the, the strings that go to things that really bite on ICOs like expectation of profit, um, you know, the, the case line that starts with SEC versus Costco is over 100 cases long. Um, and there's a couple of other related things, so 30 or 40 cases long. And so it's very difficult for them to do anything other than do what they said, which is it's the facts and circumstances analysis. Um, and it's very tough to give broad guidelines when that's the case you're, you're dealing with. Um, so I think they've been doing a very good job. Um, I think they've been doing their best to provide between the 21A DAO report and the Munchie order guidance that people can take away um, and draw some conclusions from. Um, those conclusions are, are generally speaking not groundbreaking. They're consistent with the high test. Um, so, so just to, you, know, you better you better just briefly explain the Howey test and how it might apply to ICOs and um, cryptocurrencies generally. Sure, um, I tend to rearrange the limbs of it, but um, the Howey test originally came from a case in the 1970s about whether selling pieces of an orange grove were what's called an investment contract. So it originates because. Section 2 of the Securities Act of 1933 lists out a whole bunch of things that can be securities. Um, and one of the things that everyone in the space needs to remember is that the Harry test is not the be-all and end-all. There are about 30 other things that count as security for the purposes of Section 2. Um, but what we're focusing on here with Harry test is whether something is considered um, an investment contract. Um, and the Harry test and determines an investment contract to be an investment of value in a common enterprise without the involvement of the investors and or rather the predominant involvement of management in the expectation of profit. Um, And the thing about ICOs is the SEC has already given guidance that they consider um, 
Ether, um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies value. Uh, and the IRS considers them property, so it would count as value anyway. So you definitely tripped limb one. Yeah. Whether it's a foundation or not, da, 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 or not, you generally speaking going to have it. If you've got some form of corporate form, it's going to be a common enterprise. However, however, if your cryptocurrency genuinely forks, um, like Ethereum, like Bitcoin, then there is an argument that it is not a common enterprise. Um, and again, the, the test that goes to the involvement of the investor, if it, if it is a cryptocurrency that's genuinely forks, then you probably haven't tripped them two and three. Um, I think something similar is I think something similar is going on in Australia, where the tax office has said that they're an asset and therefore subject to capital gains tax. But the and the the equivalent of the SEC has determined that they are in fact um, securities, and you need to you need to comply with the securities laws. I have not actually seen that. Um, I ought to check in on that. I didn't think the. Um Australian Securities Authority has been that broad. Um, well, they, well, it's, it's, I was, I was, I was summarising a bit, but there, there, um, there was more to it than that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, generally speaking, um, uh, when you start looking globally, you, you've got that advantage that a lot of things stem from an English common law root. Um, and, and generally speaking, in most of uh, the common law jurisdictions, if you have ever at any time promised extravagant profit connected to a piece of paper, very, very broadly speaking, that has been determined to be a security. Um, when you get into the civil law jurisdictions, it gets a bit more complicated. Um, in that the civil law jurisdictions start getting are far more interested in whether who, who the counterparties are. Um, and, and they're only going to really say you're into uh, what would be regulated as a security under civil law. So we're talking about Germany, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, these kind of jurisdictions, where there is a definite income stream. It's not just a promise of profit. There has to be a definite income stream. Um so that, that's kind of the difference between the two jurisdictions. Um, but, to, you know, to try and answer your question more succinctly, yes, I think that the SEC is doing a very good job. I think they're keen to see the U.S. be a leading force in the world in capital markets. They don't want to squish this, um, but they do want to good, give good guidance. And so I think you'll see the SEC continue to draw the net tighter and tighter and give clear and clearer guidance um, as they find cases that suit their purposes to give a good piece of guidance. Now, when we're just moving on to Bitcoin and the price, I mean, you wrote in December um, that uh, you thought that the uh, price of Bitcoin would hit $50,000 sometime during the middle of this year. And, uh, of course, when you wrote that, the Bitcoin price was, I think, uh, at at that moment, $20,000 US. So, uh, fifty thousand. Right? So fifty thousand. It was about nineteen. Yeah, it was about nineteen at the time. That's right. So um, fifty thousand did seem 
did seem doable. But now, of course, it's under, I think it's under 7,000 as we speak. So uh, have you revised your views about all that? Um, I mean, I, I wrote in that same article um, and somehow no one is commenting at the time. Um, we've actually seen this pattern repeated for the last three years. Um, what, what is generally anecdotally understood is that a large number of um, people in the in the People's Republic of China tend to sell down their Bitcoin ahead of the Lunar Festival. The Lunar Festival is the 8th to the 16th of February. Um, and we've seen this sell-down pattern in January and February repeated for the last three years. There have also been um, other kind of things that have prompted the sell-off. Um, there's a great little chart that I can send you on kind of the various bits and pieces. Um, but there always does tend to be downward pressure this time of year. So um, it's... I, got to say i didn't expect to see it go under seven um but do i still think it's going to hit 50 this year yeah i do well you must think just it's bear a, in mind it was it in that case it's a screaming buy um yeah no it's a fantastic buying opportunity i am very long on bitcoin it was at 700 dollars in january 2016 um you know um i i if anyone has a strong theory about where Ethereum is going, good luck to them because I've got no idea. Um, but Bitcoin has been relatively predictable on a fairly steady upward trend for the last 18 to 24 months. Um, so I think it was Brian Kelly who said that he thought it would hit six before it would hit 50. Um, but it, this kind of volatility is kind of not out of the park and especially not out of the park for this time of year. How come you, you know more about where Bitcoin's heading than Ethereum? Um, because Ethereum is extremely hard to model. Um, its behavior is very erratic um, and the Bot activity around Ethereum seems to be considerably more active than Bitcoin. I don't know why that is. But again, you know, the, the chatter in the line, that isn't on, that isn't, well, I'm trying to choose some words, but that's very heavy bot activity. Um, and so what acti- uh, that what, makes Ethereum. Did you say spot activity? No, um, uh, algorithm activity, bot activity. Oh, bot activity, right. So there's, no, there's a huge, I mean, there's a large amount of algorithm-driven trading across all cryptocurrencies. Um, but Ethereum, with its jitters and jinks and various issues, attracts the vast majority of the algorithm-based trading as far as I'm aware. Well, that's very interesting. So, I mean, the, the um, those big... Um, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Ripple, uh, Litecoin, and so on, seem to be jostling for uh, you know, uh, supremacy in the kind of what you might call the money transfer or money replacement scene. Um, uh, do you think that Bitcoin still looks like the winner of that um, of that contest? <laughs> um. Well, my team has a very we, we we argue about this more or less daily. Um, so um, I've got one view 
my view amongst my team is very extreme. Which is? What um, is it? In that I tend to be very long on Bitcoin. Um, I am skeptical of Ethereum's ability to deliver Casper, Defender Ghost, and the Metropolis build-outs are both six months overdue. Um, and the, the amounts for those are um, hugely dependent you know, on whether those build-outs happen. Sorry, one second. Sorry, sorry, um, so, um, so yeah, uh, Ethereum is inevitably tied to its use as an ERC-20 smart contract, um, and whether um, these build-outs that are designed to speed up its rate of payment are going to happen. Because at the moment, when you run an ICO, uh, the Ethereum blockchain disunites considerably faster than Bitcoin does. Um, and there's several companies that are kind of racing Ethereum, including RSK Labs and EOS. And they are building on either building brand new protocols or they're building on top of Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, at a macro level, the price of those coins depends on the build out. Um, because at, mom- at the moment, the-, the speed of transactions that you can get through either Ethereum blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain is just woeful. Um, so the problem we have on ICOs is that when you hit over 100 transactions, the blockchain forgets the transaction, um, hits or confirmations rather. Um, and so on very popular ICOs, you often have the blockchain disunite because it hits so many confirmations but doesn't actually get added to the blockchain because the blockchain's overloaded. So my kind of longer view on all of those coins r- relates to, you know, who, who's using them for what and what, what are they building out on top of them and how close are they to actually achieving that. Um, and I think, again, that you know, that's a tough one to predict, but we'll see that play out this year. A lot of cryptocurrency skeptics uh, say that um, blockchain will survive, but cryptocurrencies won't because it's all a scam and a bubble. Um, what's your <laughs> response to that? Um, you know, all, ever since the gold standard was got rid of, all currencies are a figment of people's belief that something's worth what it's worth. Um, so do I think every single project needs its own coin? No, I don't. Um, you know, do I think we're going to see, yeah, I think we're at about 1,500 different currencies right now. Do I think they're all going to be active in a year's time? No, I don't. Um, we are very careful when we take on projects to focus on whether blockchain is required and, you know, we ask very carefully, you know, who is going to buy your token, why are they going to buy it, you know, are you going to retail it, are you going to trade it? Um, And we look very carefully to those questions before we take a client on. Um, 
I'm very long on cryptocurrency as a whole. Um, somehow the internet didn't reach the financial system. Um, the, you know, the, the ability to transfer money globally is still woefully slow and incredibly expensive. Um, and and so I think you know these these issues in the the regular financial system are going to continue to drive people into cryptocurrencies and global instability is is also you know going to continue to drive cryptocurrencies. Um, th- there's a reason why cryptocurrency is incredibly popular in Latin America, in Africa, in China. Um, and those reasons are not going away anytime soon. Great to talk to you, Emma. I appreciate it. And thank you for talking to me while you're still sick with pneumonia, of all things. Heaven to <laughs> I've, uh, you've, um, been t- you've, been, you've, you've been extremely generous and, uh, if not, courageous. So thank you. It was a pleasure. Lots of interesting questions. That was Emma Channing, the founder and principal of Satis Group. <laughs> 